Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Friday, May 13th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior getting a look at the waiver wire targets for this weekend, some ads and drops. I think we'll probably talk a little bit about a few drops because we just learned that Jared Kelnick has been sent back to AAA, which will lead to some interesting decisions in redraft leagues with him this weekend. Obviously some interesting long-term implications there as well because you might be able to trade for Jared Kelnick very easily in a keeper or dynasty league. We'll talk about whether or not that's a good idea, but the main focus, as it always is, will be on redraft formats shallow bats to consider, deep league bats to consider, pitchers of all kinds that you want to think about, and even a few potential sources of saves as we get going. Uh, If things look or sound different, it's because I have achieved what I think is probably the highest point in my career, Al. I am now recording a podcast from my parents' basement. It is only for today, (laughs) I think. It's just uh, I'm at home, and we're doing this show Friday afternoon, and obviously had to do it somewhere, so to the basement I go. Well, highest point of your career, but maybe the lowest point in altitude. Yep, uh, it's a good good call. I think I think that's accurate. <laughs> to, to my knowledge, that would be accurate. Let's get into some of the shallow league bats, though, that we're going to be looking at this weekend. Uh, if you're looking at Josh Naylor coming off of a very productive week, we have news on him. He was just placed on the COVID list a little after 3 o'clock Eastern on Friday. So while he's available in about 40% of CBS leagues, he's got a bit of a, a day-to-day uh, unknown hanging over him at least through the weekend perhaps early next week he's back he could be back as soon as i think saturday or sunday it's entirely possible it's a quick turnaround but nevertheless Naylor among the shallow league bats that i think are pretty interesting because the playing time has been there pretty consistently and he might be tapping into that power that some of us were hoping for yeah well certainly hoping for but not necessarily expecting and that, you know, that's why i think we've talked about Naylor maybe in the past week or so. I mean, he's, he's definitely been on a heater for a while. Uh, but really up until researching the column for, for this week, the waiver column, I, I, you know, I just thought, okay, well, Naylor, he's just he's just not a power guy. He's not been that in the minor leagues. He's never been that in the major leagues. There was one partial season, 2019. He was in the PCL, so like all the conditions were perfect for him to show a little bit more power, and he did. But that's, that's really it. But he is backing up the the surface power stats so far with a much higher exit velocity on flies and liners. He's 24. That's the other thing too. You know, Naylor made his debut young, and you know, I, I certainly I think I'm guilty of thinking that maybe he was a couple years older. So it's entirely possible that this is legit. Um, it's also entirely possible that this is you know roughly a month's worth of. Uh, Played appearances and it's not really that much, and and things will uh, you know find their level again for him. But I, I you know, the, for me the bottom line is might as well take a flyer on him. I, I wouldn't you know empty the Fab account to do it, but if you can you know sneak in like a a two percent bid, maybe even a three percent bid on the the chance that this is going to be sustained, why not? Yeah, I think the thing that's always drawn me to Naylor is he's done a good job keeping the strikeouts in check. He debuted young, like you said, back in 2019, struck out 22.9% of the time that first season. He's been under 20% every year since, sitting at 13% early on in 2022. And I'm glad you brought up the exit velocity on flies and liners. I would have assumed that was also going to be up because the hard hit rate is sitting at 49.2%, also a career best. So all the underlying indicators trending in the right direction. This seems to be a guy with a good hit tool, who's starting to get to at least consistent average power 
even though he's shown above average power in a very limited sample so far this season. Uh, Luke Voigt is available in a similar number of leagues after coming off the IL, so I'm sort of curious. You're looking for some power. Maybe you're trying to fill a UT spot. Uh, how do you stack up Naylor versus Voigt if that's a choice you get to make? It might be categorical need to some extent because you, you talked about the strikeout rates for Naylor that have been very consistent and low. Haven't always translated into a good batting average, but his ceiling is clearly higher than Luke Voigt's in that regard. But I do trust the power more from Luke Voigt and the fact that he had a two two home run game coming right off of the IL uh, makes me feel pretty good about him being 100% healthy and being able to you know have that kind of, uh, you know, perhaps... 20 home run plus rest of season power. Um, so if that's your need, I, I think Voight's the clearly better choice. Yeah, I do think you're much safer in the batting average category with Naylor, regardless of the direction that his power goes in the long run. With Voight, I think we're going to look back at what happened in, in 2019 with the rabbit ball and, of course, in the shortened season in 2020. He hit 277 that year. That might be a little bit unsustainable in the long run. We might see him as more of like a 240 guy most years, uh, especially being in a closer to neutral environment in San Diego now. Of course, he was in the Bronx for a long time, getting a bit of a boost from that park. That, of course, is gone. But I think the playing time is going to be pretty stable for Voight. So long as he doesn't go into a prolonged slump, they need him. They need power. They need him to be there pretty much every day. So I think they're very comparable players. Uh, The categories might drive it for me if I had kind of a balanced team, I think I would be a little more aggressive with Voight, or at least if I had equal bids on them, I would prioritize Voight just slightly ahead of Naylor. And I think one of the things we've been able to do a lot this season with our new prospect show on Tuesdays is talk about players who are soon to debut or have been recently called up. So you and I have talked about Alec Thomas uh, just a few days ago. He's now over 50% rostered on CBS, and I think we were a little bit apart on how much we were valuing him earlier in the week, but uh, are you convinced that this playing time is at least stable, even if you're looking at those skills and and wondering how quickly it's all going to translate against big league pitching? Yeah, you pretty much convinced me of that the last time that we talked about him on this show, uh, because I raised the the point that uh, the the impetus for him coming up was that Carson Kelly went on the IL and that the Diamondbacks needed a center fielder because they needed Varsho to catch. But you know, you made the point that Seth Beer he doesn't look like a, a major roadblock. I mean, you could envision him being either sent down or. Uh, demoted to a, a less prominent role on the major league roster. I mean, there's there's opportunities for Thomas to play regularly rest of season as long as he does continue to hit. And I think he's got a profile that's not exactly comparable, but you know, with the the cohort of call ups that we've had recently, it's sort of similar to Jose Miranda's. Mm-hmm. And you've seen Miranda really struggle to hit for average so far. You just you never know how this is going to go with call ups. Um, so uh, I, I expect that both Miranda and Thomas will be able to hit for average if they're given the opportunity to, to work out their, their struggles. I'm not convinced there's going to be great power this season from either of them. I, we're talking about him as part of our, our shallow league bats to consider. I think shallow in this case would be 12 teams, five outfielders as the most shallow league where I'd think about Alec Thomas. I don't think you want him in a 10-team league or anything where you're only starting you know, three outfielders in a UT. I don't think he has enough ceiling right now to get there. Uh, But in those deeper formats where he's available, I think bidding might be somewhat tempered just because of where he's hitting in the order so far. In the four games he started, he's hit eighth or ninth. The thing that makes me still want to invest or possibly pick him up in those formats is this is a soft lineup. This is a team that's struggling to score runs consistently. 
And because of the plate skills he's shown really throughout his time in the minor leagues, it is not difficult to imagine a scenario in which Alec Thomas quickly moves up to a more prominent spot. There's plenty of other players that get called up. Maybe C.J. Abrams is a good example of this earlier in the year with San Diego, where it was a little bit harder to see that path to either the top of the order, or especially in Abrams' case with power that's still really developing a middle-of-the-order spot. With Thomas, if he hits, he's going to move up, and he's going to move up quickly. So that run production that you might be worried about right now, you might not be worried about that even two weeks from now if things are going well. So keep that in mind as you look at where he's been hitting. It's not necessarily indicative of where he's going to be hitting uh, just a couple of weeks down the road. We did get some good news, at least for Royce Lewis's short-term playing time outlook, and some clarity with Carlos Correa going to the IL. So it buys Lewis some more time on the big league roster. And this would be another situation, kind of like the Abrams one, where I'd look at Lewis and say it's a little bit more difficult for him to move up and take on a prominent spot in the Twins lineup. We also have the longer-term questions about where he fits once Correa eventually comes off the IL. But now that Correa's on the IL, in those more shallow formats where Lewis maybe wasn't picked up last weekend, are you going to at least use him as a a temporary fill-in, as a a middle infielder that might have some upside? I think it's worthwhile to do that. I mean, he was... uh, in. The, the previous week when, you know, it was kind of a, a fabapalooza, or at least mini fabapalooza. And he was my top target um, because of the the potential combination of, of skills and categories that he can address. And so now that the playing time is a little better cemented than it was a week ago, uh, you know, all the more reason if he's still out there um, to, to go go pretty aggressively after Lewis. Yeah, I think at least like a 5% bid at a bare minimum in those leagues where he's still out there because... He does a little bit of everything, as we said earlier this week, really was producing at a level we had not seen before during his time at AAA. It was his best season results to date in his professional career, so it seemed like things were really starting to fall into place for him to begin this season during his time at St. Paul. So I'm definitely interested in Lewis now that we know Correa is going to be out for a little while with that injury. We've talked about Jonah Heim on this show before, and I wonder... If shallow league bat for him just means any two-catcher league now, because Mitch Garver's on the IL, and I think even after Garver comes back, seeing Jonah Heim in the cleanup spot for the Rangers makes me think that they're valuing his bat quite a bit. Clearly, they like Garver a bit as well, and now that Willie Calhoun has been sent back to AAA, I think you can see more lineup configurations where both Heim and Garver, once Garver's back can actually start together. Garver will DH and Heim will be the guy behind the plate because they like his defense in addition to what he does as a hitter. You could see that, but at least I could also see the possibility that Garver comes back. And I mean, Garver's going to come back in DH uh, probably for a week or so before he actually goes behind the plate. So you'll have an opportunity there for for Heim to keep catching. But I could also then see when, when Garver is ready to catch that Heim goes from maybe being four times a week to three times a week. And... That you know, given, I mean, that, that, that it's it's not a small difference, and yet it, it could be a big difference when you're looking at the pool of catchers and uh, what they're likely to produce. So I, I'm not going after him really aggressively. I think even in, in a 12 team, even a, in a one catcher league, I think that Heim has some good short term value as long as you go in thinking, okay, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go splurge here, but I could use a short term catcher upgrade. And Heim's sitting really well. He's barely swinging and missing at all. He's getting a lot of playing time. He's going to fill in nicely for two or three weeks. And then we'll see. Yeah, I think that's the way I would look at him, especially in a one-catcher league, is that you could just use him temporarily. And maybe you haven't found your catcher for the next four and a half months, but you 
found someone that's going to be good for the next few weeks. And if you've been doing that streaming off the wire, hey, that's going to be just fine given where he's at and how much he's producing over these last few weeks, especially. Uh, Brandon Drury has come up on a few shows in the last couple episodes. Got second base, third base, and outfield eligibility, just about 40% rostered in CBS leagues. And I think interest is ticking up compared to where it was even just a week ago because the lineup placement has been consistently good. The playing time volume is there. And it seems like the Reds are starting to wake up a little bit after a miserable April. They had a series against the Pirates last weekend. I think they swept the Pirates, or at least one, two of three took two of three from the Brewers, so at the very least, and even with all the injuries they're dealing with, they're starting to look more like a a competent offensive team, which bodes well for even secondary guys like Drury getting this opportunity. Yeah, no, it it really does, and I mean, there was just no way that the Reds were going to keep being that bad, uh, particularly on the offensive side, so I feel like what they're doing now is something that can be sustainable, and you know, I, what you said about Drury uh, having more interest, uh, there being more interest in him more recently, even though he's been hitting well for a while now, I think probably maybe I'm just going to overgeneralize from my own uh, reaction here. But, you know, Drury's had a rough time, like really getting that chance to be an everyday guy. Uh, especially the last couple of seasons, he really hadn't played much at all. So in my mind, it was just like, okay, well, but he's going to he's gonna hit the skids and then he's going to be not playing much at all. But he keeps hitting, he keeps playing. He's hitting uh, up near the top of the order. And, he, you know, he's a guy who's shown pretty decent power in the past. And now he's got a ballpark that can take good power and make it look like great power. So I think as long as he keeps hitting, even when Jonathan India comes back, He's versatile enough that, you know, he could play third base. He can DH. I think he could play a little outfield. So, um, you know, I, I think that he's worth spending a little bit extra on because of all all the pluses. Yeah, I just love the versatility. Middle corner and outfield is such a nice player to have. I, I think when you've, you've got NFBC leagues with the twice-weekly swaps, I think a lot of people in those formats have been quick to jump on board because you get to the, the weekend lineup adjustment and someone's missing, move everybody around, Drury can cover so many spots. That's been really helpful. I'm curious to see if the added power holds up. I mean, obviously the park, as you mentioned, gives him a higher floor in that regard. You go back to the last couple times that he was really an everyday player. You're going all the way back to the year of the rabbit ball in 2019 when he had semi-regular playing time, 447 plate appearances with the Jays that year, but he hit 218, 262, 380. Prior to that, he looked like a good average, decent OBP kind of above average slugging percentage sort of player in Arizona. So I I think he's always shown this ability to be at least a useful big league bat, even if it wasn't exciting for fantasy purposes. Now, because of the park and the lineup placement, I think he actually does scratch the itch for us in a lot more leagues from a fantasy perspective. Um, There's one more shadow league bat that I wanted to throw out there. It's Luis Garcia. He has not been brought back up by the Nationals just yet, but he just looks like a different player at AAA. And that's been the case really since he arrived at that level. More game power there than anywhere else. And I know with with AAA affiliates especially, there's always some question about, well, is it the PCL? Is it just the the environments? I think it might be a little more than that with Garcia. He's been so young at every stop, and he's always had a good hit to it. He's always been a guy that kept the strikeout rate down. I think this is maybe... I don't know, maybe a bit more like Luis Urias's development uh, a few years ago in the minor leagues, where for a long time it was a low K rate, not a lot of power. He got to AAA, hit for power. People were skeptical of it because it was El Paso in his case. And then he came up to the big leagues, and after a little bit of time to make some adjustments, 
it finally came through over a full big league season a year ago in Milwaukee. So do you share some of my optimism with Luis Garcia, especially knowing that the Nats can't wait that much longer to call him up? If he's not up by June 1st, I don't really know what they're doing. I don't really know what they're doing now, to be yeah. honest. Right. <laughs> I don't I, understand why he's not up, but uh, you look at all the other players who are already up that we've been talking about. So it's already a bit of a puzzle. It would seem completely implausible that he wouldn't be up by the beginning of June, which means that, yeah, now is probably a really good time to add him while maybe he's not as uh, as prominently on the radar as uh, the other players that we're talking about here. And yeah, I think that comp with Arias is really really spot on uh in terms of the profile being young for the young for the levels and having that potential to be a much better hitter than what we saw uh the last time that uh, Garcia was up so yeah I, I I do share your optimism and I don't remember why I, I believed this if I saw him in a fall league or something when he was younger but in my mind Luis Garcia is 510 and 180 pounds but he's listed at 6'2", 224 pounds. It's not surprising for a human that size to get stronger and to start hitting the ball with more authority. So uh, I'm keeping a bit of an open mind once he comes up. If you're in a position in a redraft league where you're looking for some help up the middle, you're looking for someone who could play a lot and possibly end up in a prominent lineup spot, Garcia might be worth stashing if you're allowed to stash players that are currently in the minor leagues. I realize there are some leagues that simply do not allow you to do that. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Let's go to some deeper league bats. And I think you could probably argue this first one as a shallow league consideration, depending on what you're doing at third base currently. But I'm curious, what are you doing with Evan Longoria, Al? He's Rostered in about 35% of CBS leagues. I think on a per-plate appearance basis, he really exceeded my expectations last year. At some point, I will finally fully believe in what the Giants are doing. The numbers tell me I should be believing in it already this year. It shouldn't take me another two and a half months to get on board. And I think Longoria being back, even though he's 36 now, he's actually a guy that makes an already good offense just a little bit better. Yeah, and I think maybe the one thing that gives, well, two things that give me a little bit of pause, and one is just the amount of time that he has spent on the IL in recent years, and the other being that with him playing for the Giants and that they just have such a deep roster and will mix and match. Uh, I don't think, you know, I'm worried about Longoria being on the wrong side of platoon or anything, but just, you know, is he going to sit more often than I would like for the the 12-team leagues where I have him? I have absolutely no hesitation rostering him in 14 or 15 leagues. Uh, I've been stashing him in a few leagues all season long because he was one of my favorite hitters from last year. Just took, it feels weird to say this about guys mid thirties, but took huge strides forward in terms of power or, you know, probably strides forward isn't the right word. It's more like a resurgence, but um, you know, I'm just hopeful that now that he's, you know, back and, and apparently healthy that we'll, we'll see that level of production again. 
I think at the very least, if you are in a position to be bidding on Brandon Drury and one of the places you want to use him as third base, Longoria is a viable near-min-bid sort of backup even in those 12-team leagues. I'm looking at him more for 14-plus team mixed leagues, but I don't think you're necessarily making a big mistake if you're playing him in something more shallow than that because the Giants score enough runs. You're looking for teams that are above average in terms of run production. They have that. It's amazing, too. I think resurgence is exactly the right word because if you look at 2021 for Evan Longoria, he had a 123 WRC+, easily his highest in years. 2016 was the last time he was that productive as an offensive player. It was kind of hovering around a league average mark for the better part of the previous four seasons. Injuries, obviously, are a part of that story. And, and they, the Giants are good at resting guys and trying to build in preventative maintenance. So yeah, you're not getting max volume playing time, but the supporting cast does help to offset some of that lost playing time. Uh, MJ Melendez comes up again in this section. I think having seen him just sit two consecutive days, once against the lefty, once against a righty, it kind of highlights some of my concerns that it's still crowded there, even with Carlos Santana on the IL. So I think Melendez, for me, is still limited to two catcher leagues, even though long-term he has the ceiling to easily be a single-catcher, shallow-league relevant player. Yeah, it was probably not happening in uh, in 2022, but uh, for for redraft leagues, yeah, I think there is that that concern. I was maybe a little too optimistic a week ago because I just thought, okay, well, he's up. He's they're not going to bring him up to sit. Uh, he and and Perez will just you know switch off catcher uh, designated hitter, and boom, you know uh, the, the playing time is there. But it's a little strange, right? You know, a little bit like Luis Garcia situation. It's a little puzzling that he wouldn't be playing closer to every day, but you have to look at what what they're actually doing in Kansas City and not what we want them to do. Let's talk about Vidal Brujan. He is up right now for the Rays and Josh Lowe back at AAA hitting home runs but striking out a lot, so maybe not forcing the issue for a quick return, which leaves the door open potentially for Brujan to stake his claim to some share of playing time. So uh, how aggressive are you being in uh, fab situations with Brujan? Is there any reason to believe that things might be different this time around for him? I mean, there there is you know certainly reason. I mean, you figure at some point somebody with with Bruhan's pedigree and, and his minor league track record has got to get a real legitimate shot instead of uh, really what the Rays have done so far, which is just bring him up for for cups of coffee. Um, in in the waivers piece, I I kind of soft pedaled him a little bit. I'm personally not going to go really aggressively against Bruhan, partly because of my concern about how much playing time he's going to get in the short and in the long term in 2022 and also because there are, there are some other options in terms of steals. And I, I'm really not, at least this year, I'm not really expecting much power from Bruhan. I don't know that there is a path for him to be in a prominent spot in the order. So I, I am viewing him as a steal specialist and there's a name, and I know we were probably going to get to him a lot later, but um, Andrew Velasquez, he is playing every day for the angels strikes out a lot. He's not hit for any power so far, but this is another player again, small sample, but hitting the ball really hard when he's hitting it in the air and the, the power numbers of the minor leagues, not great, but they, you know, they would suggest that there is a little bit of power there that he, that Velasquez isn't necessarily just going to be a steals only guy. So I don't think I'm going to have to really put more than like a 1% bid on Velasquez of even that much. I think he's very much under the radar and yet he's already stolen five bases. It's not potential. He's already providing that and there may be more to come. Yeah. And you're not really as worried about, an up and down sort of future yeah. for him, which has been the case with Bruhan to this point. 
Uh, with Velasquez, I know you're also probably expecting below average run production just based on the fact that he's stuck in the bottom third of the order. It's hard to see him moving up, but I think the case for Velasquez, the case for any player who can offer you speed if you're in a rotisserie league right now, look at the stolen base category. There's probably three to four steals separating someone from second in the category from someone who's like eighth or ninth in the category. So just finding one player who can run a bit more could make a huge difference for you in the long run. And I think Velasquez is definitely worth the mention there. I think my concerns about Bruhan are actually long-term concerns. Even though he was showing some improvements overall at AAA Durham this year, he's now kind of getting to that point where he's not young for the level anymore. And part of that is he, he lost the 2020 minor league season like a lot of people did. I and mean, he's not he's not old for the level. He's not 26 yet. He's only 24. But I, I guess I would like to see more consistent power for him repeating a level like that. I mean, that's that's one kind of surprising thing. I looked back historically at some players with similar profiles, guys that uh, had similar ISOs at AAA, similar WRC plus marks, and it's it's not it's not always a, a group of players that comes up and thrives. It tends to be more frustrating players for us as fantasy managers because a lot of these guys they're either versatile and, and Bruhan's versatile, or they're on good teams that the threshold to crack the lineup on a regular basis is so high that these players' baseline skills are often not high enough to crack it. So I think Dalton Pompey, who dealt with a lot of injuries, was among the comps that came up statistically. And I thought, wow, I just remember Dalton Pompey being one of those guys that we all wanted to believe in year over year over year. And there are probably two or three years where everybody thought this is the year this is going to happen. I hope we're not going down that same path with Bruhan. So I've kind of kept that in my mind in addition to the up-and-down concern to really temper my bidding. I know he's made a couple of starts since getting called up, so we got to watch really closely on a day-to-day basis. A lot can change between Friday afternoon when we record this show and Sunday night when waivers actually run, so keep an eye on his status before even including him as a contingency bid because there's always a chance that he gets bumped off the roster. Uh, Colin Moran, another Reds hitter who had a huge week, and it started during that Pittsburgh series that I mentioned, is anything different about him other than the park? I mean, it's, is it similar to Drury where it's like baseline skills actually weren't that bad and he's the big side platoon DH for the Reds as they're currently constructed, so maybe we should be more excited about him as a corner infield filler in the short term. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know that there's anything really different or at least any reason to expect that there's going to be anything different over the long haul. I also do worry about uh, playing time uh, once everybody's back. For Moran, but yeah, it's a, it's a stopgap. I don't like him as much as I like Brandon Drury, but I think that in, a, in an environment like Cincinnati, that there's some legit power there. And, uh, you know, 15 team uh, pickup where he's available, um, nothing wrong with that at all. It's probably a low percentage, too. A 2 to 3% is all it's going to take to get Colin Moran onto a roster at this point. I would keep an eye on the projected matchups, though, too. If you see a lot of lefties in the schedule, he might not be as enticing in a weekly league as a result of that. But the playing time, as far as opportunities against righties, looks pretty good uh, for the time being. Uh, ben Gamble actually caught my eye this weekend. Is another sort of older-ish player who's been around. He's had a few opportunities, and he's getting more consistent run right now thanks to being on the Pirates. And I thought, let's look at the profile. It's probably going to be the same as it's always been. But it's actually not in this case. There's a lower strikeout rate than we've really seen at any point during his big league career. 
he's swinging less at pitches outside the zone than he has the last couple of seasons. Not by a massive amount, but it is still some improvement. He's already taken off a couple of times for a few steals. I don't know if there's anything there in terms of more than like 15 home run power over a full season. I think that's still a, a kind of a question with Ben Gamble. But I think he's doing enough to just keep playing a lot. And I think he can be a decent accumulator for us in deeper leagues as a result of these underlying skills being pretty solid. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think back to when he was with the Mariners, particularly that first season when he, uh, you know, the first fall season in Seattle, when he was playing regularly, I think he was hitting pretty high in the order too, maybe even leading off. And he was getting on base a lot. And I remember thinking like in Tout Wars, which is no BP league and thinking, you know, I should really have, you know, Ben Gamble and he's really going to help. And, it you know it just never really happened. It just wasn't quite enough there, even in an OBP league. So I think that that strikeout reduction that you talked about that is really crucial because now he's a, a potential contributor in standard leagues with batting average instead of OBP. But also obviously it helps him a ton in OBP leagues too, and he is hitting uh, high up in the order for the Pirates. So you know this this might be the peak year for Ben Gamble uh, as long as he can keep those strikeouts down. Uh, I think his his career high in runs, I think I want to say 68. Mm-hmm. And conceivably, if he keeps this going, I mean, he could be an 80-plus runs guy, you know, who, who it's, you know, maybe in the 280s, 290s. Yeah, it, it's not the the sexy profile you're looking for that's going to make an impact in a 10-team league or even a 12-team league. But I think there are some leagues where people are each week looking at the wire, seeing Ben Gamble and just saying, nah, nothing new is happening there. Well, something new is happening there, and it might be just enough to get him onto rosters as maybe you're your first bench outfielder, the guy that comes in when someone else is unavailable, and that's actually not that bad. A few other names I'm going to throw out there. Lamont Wade Jr. still only rostered in about 12% of CBS leagues. Uh, we kind of know what he can do based on what was happening last season. Obviously, the playing time situation there is not as solid as it is for someone like Gamble, but uh, if you can make daily moves, especially in a deep league, I think Wade makes some sense. And then there's Alfonso Rivas, who's really getting an opportunity with the Cubs. And I think, you know, because Frank Schwindel has been demoted, uh, Rivas is sitting out there and he's playing a pretty prominent role. He's a left-handed bat, mostly working as a first baseman. Even if he's a big side platoon guy, he's leading off sometimes. He's hitting in the middle third of the order when he's not leading off. I, there's a little bit of patience here. Like, What do you see in the profile and, and, and how interested are you in Rivas where he's available? I'm not seeing much in the profile that I that I am interested in because I yeah I see where he's sitting in the lineup I see that the opportunity he's getting and I think okay the Cubs obviously think highly of Rivas there's got to be something there and then every time I go and look and and think about okay well maybe I need to go be, you know pick him up and I'm just not seeing it so maybe it's really just a case of the best option at first base among not really good options but I'm I'm sort of missing it. Yeah, you got to get them. You got to get them as a, a contingency bid, though. I think behind your other yeah. options, because there's enough there where if you just need to fill a hole as a result of some corner infield uh, injuries, I think he can offer some help there. Eight percent barrel rate so far this season, thirty-six percent hard hit rate, which does give you an idea of a possible limited power ceiling. But the OBP up over four hundred early on this season, walked a bit during his taste of the big leagues last year with the Cubs as well. So I think there is at least a good OBP, solid average sort of profile here with maybe slightly better counting stats than you'd expect if they keep hitting him this high in the order. Let's move on to some pitchers, and I think we begin with George Kirby. Simple question, in the leagues where George Kirby is available this weekend, Al, 
How aggressively are you going to bid in fab? I'm not sure that exists in my leagues, uh, but I'll, I'll go with the hypothetical and say, I think probably 15%. I mean, I just think that at this point, you know, we keep saying a lot, all these prospects are up, you know, who are you saving for? Um, and again, you know, there, there, there'll always be somebody, but it's at the point now, you know, getting into the middle of, or in the middle of May where you might as well spend that on George Kirby because I think he's pretty special. I think he's going to be a, a must-start guy rest of season. If you have the opportunity to add that player uh, and you have the budget to do it, I think you have to do it. Yeah, I think the the next start will maybe help guide the final number that you actually use. It's going to be a good challenge for him on the road against a good Mets offense. So uh, if Kirby were to get hit, that might enable you to get him for a little less than a 15% bid. I think if he pitches reasonably well or even just avoids a meltdown, it might be closer to 20% is what it takes to actually get him. Because uh, as we've said a few times on this show over the last few weeks, that wave of prospects, it's coming, but it's not necessarily as deep as it has been in years past. Last weekend might have been one of the bigger fab weekends of the year. We're still waiting on a few more pitchers. Still haven't seen Grayson Rodriguez. Still haven't seen Max Meyer. Still haven't seen Matthew Libertor. Those guys are coming too. They might not all show up at once. They might be very much staggered. So the the interest level and in, in picking them up might vary just based on your needs at different points during the season. So take advantage of the opportunity to get Kirby while you can because I, I'm with you, Al. I think the ceiling's really high. The command has always been good. I love to see that, especially with a guy that seems to have at least three workable pitches with probably a fourth not that far behind. Uh, but the other pitchers that are out there this weekend, Kyle Bradish has been talked about on a few episodes in the last couple of weeks. Uh, he's going to have a two-star week next week. Home against the Yankees and home against the Rays. I didn't put him in the two-start cluster because I just think he's a, a more broadly interesting pitcher. Based on what you're seeing from him, where are you drawing the cutoffs and, and what kinds of bids would you be thinking about in leagues where Bradish is still available? Uh, for me, 12 team is very relevant right now because at minimum you could stream him. I think he's better than that. I mean, he's been really good across the, the three starts that he's made. So I agree with you. I think he is in a this different category than just a, a, a pitch and ditch streamer. But you know, 12 team, even if you're skeptical because he's just made the three starts and because he's got two pretty tough matchups this week. Uh, I, I still think that he's in the discussion for not just picking up, but actually, you know, putting him on the active roster for those two starts in 12-team leagues. Anything deeper, he is absolute must-start. So, uh, you know, obviously a smaller bid, you know, maybe 20% bid in the the 12-teamers, but definitely, you know, 60 70%, maybe even higher in uh, in the deeper leagues if he's still out there. Yeah, so that's a that's a pretty huge bid if, uh, if you're going to go uh, that route with Kyle Bradish. I, I think the thing that's really interesting about him is the walk rate. Between his brief time at AAA and his brief time in the big leagues this year, it's right around 5% combined across the two levels, 32 innings so far. He's never been that good with control anywhere else. Doesn't mean he isn't that good now, but I just think it's the skill that if that holds, that changes a lot about his long-term ceiling. Because I think you can get away with one of walks or homers, especially dealing with the AL East. You can't get away with both. And fortunately, he's helped his own cause with the improvements he's made in one of those areas. I, I don't know if I'm quite as aggressive as you are. I mean, if I'm looking at Kirby and I'm, I'm thinking Kirby's going to be 20% of my budget at the higher end, 
think Bradish is probably more like a, a 10 to 12% bid for me if I'm in a 15-team league, probably a little bit less if I'm in a 12 because uh, those matchups are a bit scary for a shallow league especially. Uh, Reed Detmers is actually still out there in leagues that don't have a lot of first-come, first-serve moves. So Detmers goes on the road to face Texas. Apparently Reed Detmers threw a no-hitter this week. Uh, I, I didn't get to watch it, but uh, it happened. Didn't have a lot of strikeouts in that outing, but hey, it's a no-hitter. It's a young pitcher on the rise. I think it leads to some questions, though. I, are you are you really in on Detmers as a as someone that you would want to use on a regular basis? Thinking about the matchups he'll get in the AL West, thinking about a, a strikeout rate that's been really low so far this year, even though the ratios are fine. Obviously, a no-hitter goes a long way, a 377 ERA on the season, .84 whip, but only 20 Ks in 31 innings. And even last year, when things weren't going well, he was 19 Ks in 20 and two-thirds. So I'm not convinced that he's necessarily a low strikeout rate guy, but it's not quite the the shape that I was expecting from Reed Detmer's production thus far. No, no, me neither. I don't think anybody really saw this, uh, you know, saw him succeeding in this particular way. But the way I look at it is that um, he has been succeeding, you know, much like in that no hitter. Uh, by doing other things well, by actually get, getting a lot of cha- uh, getting a lot of freezes rather than getting a lot of whiffs, and um, you know not getting not allowing a whole lot of hard contact. So I obviously would prefer it if he got the swings and misses. And by he's been really consistent in not getting swings and misses. He's had one start where I think he was around ten or eleven percent. Every other one, it's been like seven percent, eight percent, seven percent. So the way I look at it is okay. He's getting by right now. Um, even though it's, you know, the same pitch mix, the same velocity, but maybe sometime in June or July, something clicks and we, we see the strikeouts, we see the swings and misses. And until then he's finding other ways to get it done. So until, you know, if, and when, uh, everything does click for him, um, until that point, no, I don't see him as a must-start pitcher. I think see him as somebody that I'll keep on my bench and uh, stream when it looks appropriate. And it looked appropriate this week to uh, keep him on my bench. That was not a good decision. I think I am at the sweet spot where I, I like Detmers coming into the season. And yes, I definitely thought he was striking more guys out than he has so far. I liked him, and I got him mostly in 15-team leagues. And it was just at the cutoff where he was in my lineups. I think in a lot of 12, if I had him in a bunch of 12s, there's a very good chance I would have had a bench for that no-hitter. So I just got lucky. I had him in the right places, didn't have good enough alternatives. Uh, basically, my incompetence worked in my favor in this particular instance, and I collected great ratios for those nine innings. I do think the schedule is worth mentioning for Detmers to this point. He got Houston for his first start of the year. They obviously don't strike out that much. Um, he got the Guardians, I think, for his fourth start. They don't strike out that much. You know, Boston... Not putting runs on the board, but they don't really stand out to me as a team that whiffs a lot either. So part of this is who he's faced. But the fact that he had that no-hitter with just two Ks, it's the reverse of a silver lining. What's the opposite of a silver lining? I don't know what's, yeah, I, I guess whatever, yeah, the, the inverse of silver is an I don't know black. Uh, yeah, it's it's the it's the unfortunate uh, under side of, of what happened. It was a great outing for him. Congrats to him. I'm, again, happy to have it. But I'm drawing my line as far as regular usage. It's still 15-team leagues for me. And even there, you might have someone who's got a two-start week. You might have someone who's got a better matchup. There's still no guarantee with these skills that he's going to be in your lineup. At a 12, I think he's rosterable. But I think he's more of a streamer than someone that's going to completely stick on the roster based on what he's done so far. At Texas, he'd probably be more in than out in a 12-teamer. So he's probably a 12-team streamer 
for this week. And there's still plenty of leagues, again, where he is out there. And there's one other name that we want to throw out there. It's just like a general pitcher of interest. We've talked a lot about Ryan Pepio in recent weeks. Home against Arizona would be the turn. They've got a doubleheader coming up next week. We learned that Clayton Kershaw has been placed on the IL with uh, an injury to his pelvis. At least that was the the parenthetical mention. I think it was like the SI joint was inflamed. But the good news here is that Kershaw is not expected to miss much more than the 15-day minimum. So that's good. Uh, The other good news is that Ryan Pepio might get to stick around for a little bit longer before possibly going back down or before possibly shifting into a relief role. Yeah, and get an opportunity to make a better, better, a better case for a bigger role for him because he had the the debut where he pitched three scoreless innings but walked five batters, and I, I'm more worried about the five walks than I am, uh, you know, encouraged by the three scoreless innings. So, yeah, it would seem that he was sent down, but he could be you know called up as the extra player for that doubleheader. It would seem like you know he lines up for that start. It would seem like that's what's likely to happen and then if he pitches well there with Kershaw um, on the shelf for a couple of weeks uh, you know maybe there's an opportunity for him to continue to make that case what you know in terms of what that means for fab I think you, you go low with Pepio I wouldn't be really super aggressive and I don't think you're gonna have to be after that first start that he made no I don't think you're gonna have to be either I think he's more of a contingency sort of bid and it's more for for deeper redraft leagues right now just given some of the uncertainty about his role I know Tyler Anderson had to Kind of take a take one for the team yesterday and and keep pitching deep into a start, in which he was giving up a lot of earned runs. I don't know if they're necessarily going to punt on him. I think he's a good enough number five starter where they're going to give him another look or two before possibly uh, shifting his role around. Uh, maybe he goes back into a long role, but Pepio needs to show us more if he's going to have an opportunity in the near future to join the Dodgers rotation. Uh, I want to talk about a few. Shallow league streamers and medium league streamers. I think Drew Smiley is a shallow league streamer at this point, Al, because the matchup is that good this week. He catches the Pirates at home. So I think if you're in a 10-team league, Drew Smiley is actually viable in that spot. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I, I like Smiley as a streamer this year. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, the potential there for him to not have the home run issues that he's had in the past uh, is it's looking good so far. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. There's a group of four that I'd put just behind Smiley, and I'm really curious if you like any of these guys or if you think any of them are also viable in more shallow leagues. It looks like Spencer Strider is going to get another turn on the road in Milwaukee. You get Kyle Hendricks home against Arizona. His season has been all over the place so far. Uh, Chris Archer catches Oakland on the road. And Jose Quintana is home against St. Louis. I really didn't think we'd be talking about Jose Quintana as a yeah. possible you know, medium league streamer, like a 12 to 14 team league streamer. But the ratios might be leading people to wonder if it's a viable idea. I'm curious if you like any of Strider, Hendricks, Archer, or Quintana. I like Strider. Not much to dislike there, uh, especially the last couple of outings where he's just been completely dominant. Uh, of the remaining three, Hendricks is probably the most intriguing, but he just feels really risky right now. And, you know, Oakland's obviously a really good matchup, and yet I'm not really trusting Archer to take advantage of it. Quintana, yeah, I mean, more relevant maybe than I expected him to be this year, but I feel like that's not a risk that that we have to take this week. When you look at Spencer Strider, do you have a sort of Dylan Cease vibe that you get from him where 
It's kind of like, well, he's going to walk a lot of guys, but he's also going to strike a lot of guys out, and that might help him sort of get away with the walk problem. Like, I don't know. I don't know if Strider is going to completely get past the control issues. The good news is, I think in his last three appearances combined, he's only walked three batters, and that's over about seven and two-thirds innings. So it's a step forward after a couple of the three walk outings earlier in the season. The Ks were there. It was four scoreless with eight Ks last time out against Milwaukee. So seeing that same lineup again actually gets me a little bit excited in this particular case because the Brewers didn't really seem to have any answers for him. I think the only thing you're really worried about, aside from control, is number of batters faced. The most he's faced in any appearance is 16 this season, and it was that last time out. So it's hard to imagine he'd get through the lineup more than two complete times unless he's really efficient again. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, it's encouraging that he's getting that same matchup again. Uh, I just, I feel pretty good about... uh, rostering Spencer Strider and, and, and starting him. I mean, especially in deeper leagues or, uh, you know, where I could use him in a relief slot, but um, yeah, I'm not too worried about the opponent, but it certainly helps to have him face somebody that he's already had really great success against. Looking at Jose Quintana, trying to find something in this profile that jumps off the page to me is different. The good news is he's keeping the ball in the park so far this season. I don't know if we want to look at that and say it is a new sustainable skill. I think that might be some noise, K rate's still pretty low. Walk rate's still up a bit like it was last season. So I'd be very careful about pushing him too aggressively. I think he's much more of a deep league streamer than someone you want to think about in those more shallow leagues. Still pretty widely available because, understandably, there are plenty of skeptics out there. Um, The deep league streamers this week, interesting group here. Vince Velasquez, who's been a Friday regular on the show for about three weeks running. Daniel Lynch who is actually going to have a home matchup against the Twins. Ryan Yarbrough, who had a, a two-start week that was uh, really bad and then really good, so ended up being just kind of okay in the end. And then we've got Jeffrey Springs also with the Rays, who's going to match up with the Tigers. So uh, what's your interest level in this group? I'm actually really interested in Springs. Uh, I love the matchup, and I think that there could be more there, especially for deep leagues. So he's... Uh, in the rotation now for the Rays, I'm not sure for how long, but at least for the foreseeable future, Springs will be in the rotation. He's been pitching you know, a little bit longer and a little bit longer. So particularly against the Tigers, I could see him going five, maybe even a little bit longer than five and have a really great outing. And uh, he's just been really effective, particularly in these, uh, I think it's the last four appearances where he's been going multiple innings and each time going a little bit further. And he's, he's just been really effective. So uh, I like him there. Uh, I'm, to me, Lynch is definitely just a, a deep league guy at this point. Probably same for Velasquez, but even a deep leagues, Velasquez would not be a must start for me. But against the Royals, I, I, I'm comfortable there. Yarbrough, um, I mean, I should like that matchup against the Orioles, but I just I'd like to see him have a couple of good starts um, and, and get back to where he was. Um, I mean, even last year wasn't great for him, but you know, get back to uh, his peak from a few years ago, and I, th- I think that's still possible. I think of those guys, Daniel Lynch is quietly the most interesting to me. I know it's coming off of a disappointing performance last time out on the road against the Orioles. I only went three and two thirds, gave up three runs, two were earned, five Ks, four walks. In the four starts prior to that, he just allowed five total walks, had gone at least five innings in each of those first four starts. So things might actually be falling into place a little bit for Lynch in a year where it's been, I think, very difficult to find pitching on the wire. I think there's an appeal here that could go beyond any given week. You could end up picking up Daniel Lynch 
using him for a spot start, finding that you don't want to cut him the next week, and you end up using him maybe two-thirds of the time the rest of the way, and it might not ruin you. There's a chance. There's a chance that using Daniel Lynch won't completely destroy your ratios because he is showing a little bit of skills growth with that walk rate. I know that last outing was a step backwards, but the first four before that were generally pretty encouraging. Of the two start pitchers this week, Yusei Kikuchi gets two at home. He's got the Mariners and the Reds. And Jake Odorizzi, who's pitched a bit better of late, goes on the road to face Boston before returning home to face Texas. I'm curious of those two, if they're both available, are you interested in most shallow and, and medium leagues? And who do you prefer if you have your choice of the two? If, I've, if I'm interested in one, it's Kikuchi. I'm not especially interested. But I, I could see him as a guy if I had like a head-to-head matchup and I it was a week where my existing pitchers were all one-start pitchers. I, I'd feel okay about getting him in there for the extra start. Odorizzi, I just absolutely do not trust. And it's a shame because those are two pretty good matchups uh, with the uh, Red Sox and the Rangers. But not a lot of swing and miss there. I think there's still a lot of potential there for home runs and just a meltdown. So even though the results have been better of late, uh, I would stay away from Odorizzi. Yeah, I think Odorizzi is a little more of a deep league two-star guy for me. Kikuchi is the one that I'd push more aggressively of the two if I were looking at a situation where both happen to be out there. The deep league and high-risk guys, I'm going to lump all three of these guys together because I think you could argue them in any direction. There's Zach Logue, who's been a temporary fill-in for the A's rotation. Maybe he gets a chance to stick around, just given that there are a couple of spots that aren't necessarily claimed there. He's going to be home against the Twins and on the road against the Angels. So uh, Zach Logue ratios correction week could be upon us. And then you've also got Madison Bumgarner on the road against the Dodgers before a road start against the Cubs. And then Wade Miley home against the Pirates and home against the Diamondbacks. And I know just coming off the IL recently, there's added risk here, but of the three in a weird way, I think because of the matchups both being at home, I think I actually trust Miley the most of these three if I had to use one. I do too. Um, and I mean, you're probably not surprised by that because I've liked Miley for the last few seasons. Um, I definitely have some concern because, yeah, that first start off of the IL was not a good one. It was not a long one, but he does have really good matchups this week. I think for me, it's more um, that I, I'm not starting Miley outside of pretty deep leagues. But I think it's an opportunity to, if he is available in deep leagues, to to pick him up, uh, and uh, you know whether you start him or not, it's like get him now when you know probably there is a lot of trepidation about rostering him as opposed to if he you know has these two good matchups and then puts two good starts together and then next week suddenly it's it's a lot harder to uh, to add Miley. So of the three, by default, I trust him the most. Logue's kind of intriguing. Um, I don't really like the matchups for either Logue or for Bumgarner. Um, that Dodgers matchup just could be an absolute disaster for for Bumgarner. So um, they're they're you know very deep league options to me. A trio that you can absolutely avoid if you want to. I do think Miley is more of a, an on the roster, off the roster sort of player in a twelve team league, but in a fifteen you might find that he hangs around a bit longer than expected. Much like Daniel Lynch, I think Lynch of course has a, a bit of a higher ceiling. But Miley kind of falls into that surprisingly useful streamer option uh, bucket on a regular basis. Plus, now he's pitching in a more pitcher-friendly environment with the move to the Cubs. I think when he was with the Reds last year especially, it was very difficult for me to trust him unless he had the split two-start week where 
One was in Cincinnati and one was on the road. In those circumstances, it was usually good enough for me to push him in the lineup. When he had two at home, I wasn't really interested. A lot of his home starts as one-offs weren't really interesting. I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case now that he gets to make half of those starts at Wrigley Field. Let's talk closers for a few minutes here, and then we'll talk about uh, the Jared Kelnick situation before we go. I think the the real like interesting name that has emerged in the last few days getting some saves is Brooks Raley in Tampa Bay. And I, I think it's it's interesting to me because I was looking at the numbers from Eno's Pitching Plus model and in terms of the stuff and the location and the overall grades, Rayleigh is almost identical to Andrew Kittredge, except he does it with his left arm. So you have these two guys on a team that likes to kind of push more towards a committee who seem to be sort of interchangeable. And I kind of like the situation for Rayleigh more than I like it for someone like Felix Bautista, who was just picking up saves this week for the Orioles while Jorge Lopez was away on the bereavement list. So uh, those two guys are probably the two that pop for a lot of people. Maybe Rafael Montero still bouncing around in some leagues, but I don't really see regular opportunities coming from him unless Presley ends up back on the IL. So uh, what's your interest level in Rayleigh especially, given that he might have a, a partial share of the closer role in Tampa Bay, even as long as Kittredge is still there and, and performing well? Yeah, and yeah, for me, the focus is on Rayleigh because Bautista, uh, I think he just goes back to a setup role uh, at this point with Lopez returning. But uh, yeah, Rayleigh, he's uh, converted the last two saves uh, in that Rays bullpen. Uh, he's, if you just look at the, the overall peripheral profile, I think I would argue he's been their best uh, reliever so far this year, a little better than Kittredge. So I don't. I wouldn't necessarily give him an edge, like you were saying. You think that maybe it's a slightly better situation for him than Kittredge. I'm not sure. I see enough of a difference there to make a distinction. But just the fact that they could be one A and one B, and actually, I really do think at this point that that's that's a situation. It's one A and one B. Uh, that you're not going to find a better situation right now. It would be nice that there was somebody emerging who was widely available, who was definitely going to be getting the full share of saves for some team. But I think Rayleigh's the best you got right now. Yeah, at least as of Friday afternoon, that is the case. Things could change in the next you know, three days' worth of games. Uh, that's the downside of doing a Friday afternoon waiver pod. The upside is that people have more time to enjoy it. So uh, I'm with you, though, on, on Rayleigh. And, and Batista, again, it, at least it's clarity on what the Orioles would do if Lopez loses the job. Who is likely to get the job? Batista looks really good. Stuff is excellent. Yeah. So I could see him eventually getting a chance, you know, you know if Lopez gets traded, hurt, struggles, whatever the cause might be. I could see Bautista getting the job and not necessarily giving it back under different circumstances. Um, the other big story this week, it turned out we got this right before we started recording on Friday, Jared Kelnick you know, sent down to AAA Tacoma. He was going to face the Mets this weekend, so maybe it's just a, a coincidence that the, the timing of this demotion happened before that and a trip to New York to, to play against the organization that traded him to Seattle in the first place. But I think it's kind of an easy cut in most redraft mix leagues. I mean, a keeper in dynasty leagues, sure, the long-term future is still, I think, pretty bright for Kelnick. But if you're talking about any sort of 12 to 15 team mix league, he's probably your easiest player to drop this weekend, even though uh, you, you might have drafted him a little earlier than a player you would be ordinarily comfortable dropping. Yeah, I agree. And I think that has as much to do or maybe more to do with perception than it does to do with um, chances that he winds up being productive for some portion of the season. I mean, you go back to last year and he did hit well down the stretch uh, and, and maybe 
he'll have you know go triple a and get get things right and uh get back to that level when he comes back but i think just the risk of losing him if you drop him right now i perceive that that is going to be very very slim and uh i agree i think that compared to what your other options are likely going to be it's, it's an easy choice yeah we've got a situation here uh, one of our viewers sarcastic and fun sarcastic and fun sarcastic and fun i'm not sure there's, it's, there's no there's no capitalization uh, torn on what to do without Kelnick, a 10-team head-to-head points league, four outfielders. Uh, alternatives to replace them include Hunter Renfro, Stephen Kwan, Tommy Pham, Jorge Soler, and Austin Hayes, among others. I mean, those guys are all, for the most part, all of those, those guys are outperforming Kelnick anyway. So there was, I think there was a difficult decision to make, even if you're in a 10-team league before this demotion. Now you just get the extra nudge where it's probably just easy to let him go if you can keep everybody then you're in a dynasty league things are different again but i would say of those available options renfro might actually be the one that stands out the most to me me too i it comes down to renfro and kwan and uh well see this is points so it's not like a categorical situation well if you need batting average go for kwan instead but yeah i think overall uh renfro is definitely definitely the one that stands out um kwan and fam would be Great adds to Solaire. Looks like he's starting to show some some signs of life there. Uh, I think all good options. That would be much better than Kelnick, but Renfro, I agree. Best one. I'd go Renfro in the short term, and I'd keep an eye on Austin Hayes. It sounds like he's got a pretty bad laceration on his hand. He got cleated on Thursday against the Cardinals, so he could, could end up on the IL, could miss some time. We'll see what happens with that. But Austin Hayes putting together a nice season so far. 291, 364, 444. A little less power than we saw last year, but steps forward with that slash line overall uh, encouraging to see that for sure with Hayes but Renfro is a great short-term replacement so be sure to scoop him up uh, where you can uh, but the Kelnick situation look I think it's a great time at a keeper or a dynasty league if you're even if you're playing for this year the cost has probably never been lower so you've got a chance to add someone that you can stash away for the future and just play the wait and see game someone might be playing for this year they might need an upgrade you can give them that upgrade, get that extra long-term value, and then try to backfill off the wire. And you're not necessarily punting on this season by doing something like that. I think sometimes that's that's lost where you're making moves for the future. People think, oh, you're not really playing for this year. You can do both simultaneously. It's absolutely possible. And I would strongly push for that if you're in a situation where you can make a move for Jared Kelnick. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be a few weeks probably before we see him back at the big league level. That is going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Give Al a follow on Twitter at AlMilkyOrBB. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Be sure to check out Al's waiver wire column each week. It goes up on Friday afternoons. You can get a uh, subscription for a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. It's the best deal that we offer all year. We've had it going for a little while now, so be sure to jump in on that before it goes away. If you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we really appreciate it. If you took a moment to leave us a nice rating. And if you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to hit the like button on this video and subscribe to this channel. If you didn't watch us live this week, we go live each and every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. For Al Melchior, I'm Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns on Tuesday. Have a great weekend.